0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. The following hour of Radio Parallax will be brought to you by our new sponsor, the CRPRC or Communist Party of the People's Republic of China. We would like to announce straight away there will be no change in editorial content of this program. In our top story today, criminal representatives of the so-called Uyghur minority of Western China have been agitating in Australia. Despite diplomatic protests lodged by many nations in effort to halt these slanderous and false accusations against the central government in Beijing, the Canberra authorities still refuse to step in. The outcry has been deafening from all around the world in defense of the legal and restrained efforts to quell discontent by national security forces. Even the Dalai Lama has been shamed into silence by the outpouring against the efforts to undermine the Communist Party Central Committee in its worthy efforts to halt the running dog lackeys of the illegal separatist hate mongers. Radio Parallax extends our warm hand of friendship and solidarity to the CPPRC. Yay! Actually, aren't you glad when you listen to programs like this that, you know, we're free to talk about whatever we want? Well, we're glad that we are, and hope you share that opinion. Let's actually begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is the 6th of August. On this date in the year 1181, a supernova was observed by Chinese and Japanese astronomers in the constellation Cassiopeia. Modern equipment now reveals it to be a neutron star rotating 15 times per second. On this date in 1762, the sandwich was invented. And though it sounds like a joke, apparently it's a true story, which is that the Earl of Sandwich, an inveterate gambler, called for a piece of beef to be put between two slices of bread so that he could eat without leaving the card table. This led a little over three centuries later to Woody Allen's classic essay, Yes, but can a steam engine do this? Which we highly recommend you read. On August 6th and 1806, German Emperor Francis II officially dissolved the Holy Roman Empire after finally having to admit 900 years after its founding that it was neither holy nor Roman nor much of an empire. On this date in 1932, and I love this one, in the United States, Richard Hollingshead Jr. registered his patent for the drive-in movie theater. His patent got declared invalid in 1950, however, and as a result, thousands of drive-ins appeared on the American landscape. And it's uh, sobering to note that on this date in 1945, the U.S. Army Air Corps dropped an atomic bomb, codenamed Little Boy, on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. 70,000 people were killed almost instantaneously. The atomic bombing of Nagasaki three days later did bring the war in the Pacific to a close. Although some historians have argued that it just ignited the Cold War. And on a happier note, it was on August 6th 1991 that the English computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee releases files which described his experimental World Wide Web project on the Internet. It turned out to be something of a success. Our quote of the day comes from the musician Joshua Heifetz, who once said, No matter what side of an argument you're on, you always find some people on your side that you wish were on the other side. Our quip of the day comes from the late President Ronald Reagan, who, according to New Scientist magazine, once said, An economist is someone who, on being shown something that works in practice, wonders if it would work in theory. Our joke of the day is an onion headline, which upon noting that, faced with declining popularity in the polls and Accused of turning their backs on moderate elements when they're within their party, the headline read, Republicans Not Interested in Popularity Contest. Adding the sub-headline, says appealing to masses is undignified. Our bonus joke of the day comes from the Humor Times magazine, which featured a cartoon showing Walter Cronkite up at the pearly gates with St. Peter, who pointing at a TV screen behind him notes, your legacy is being kept alive by comedians, with several TV faux anchors on the screen. And our statistic of the day dovetails with uh, this cartoon rather eerily, noting that, according to Time Magazine, Comedy Central's Jon Stewart, who we all know delivers fake news and satire, is considered the most trusted newscaster by 44% of Americans, beating real newscasters Brian Williams of NBC, 29%, ABC's Charlie Gibson, 19%, and poor CBS's Katie Couric, who landed only 7%. Stewart's success prompted Ron Rosenbaum, writing on Slate.com, uh, to request that John Stewart, real name Jonathan Stewart Leibowitz, change his name back to strike a blow against anti-Semitism. And I should note at this juncture that the name I use on this program, Douglas Everett, is not my real name. I change it to sound more show-busy. My real name, for the record, is Shecky Fleckman. And no, I I never get tired of that joke, which originates with comedian Dave Maxey. And we forgot to mention uh, during our uh, This Day in History section that uh, this month is also centennial, 100th year anniversary, but we're not sure on what day it was in August of 1909 that uh, the Lincoln Penny first went into circulation. Unfortunately, this will probably get a lot of people misty-eyed this 100th year anniversary and, and derail sane efforts to get rid of the one-cent coin, which now costs more than one cent to mint. And one shudders to think of the amount of uh, lost time in <laughs> checkout stands acro- across the nation every day as people have to count out change in pennies. Not only that, it's only 2.5% copper now. Let us be the first to call for a return to getting the president's mugs off the coins. I think for the year 2010, we should go back to the Indian head penny, or better yet, no penny at all. And while we're at it, let's bring back the buffalo nickel. Much better looking coin. A classic coin. The Indian on the front, the buffalo on the back. Beats the hell out of Jefferson and Monticello. All right, let's take a flying leap into the good, the bad, and the ugly. It was a good week this week for Galapagos tortoises when it was revealed that Lonesome George, the last living specimen of the Pinta Island subspecies of Galapagos tortoises, is about to become a father at the age of 90. We look forward to the day when the descendants of George are restored back to their rightful position on Pinta Island. Last week was a bad week for Canada when government figures showed that uh, tourism from Americans have dropped to the lowest level since 1972. It's a pretty big difference. Canada peaked at 40 million visitors a year in 2002, and now they're down to less than 20. The Canadian Tourism Industry Association uh, blames the drop on a new U.S. requirement which took effect on June 1st. This requires American citizens to carry a passport in order to cross the Canadian border. Note, only about 30% of Americans have bothered to get passports. I'm tempted to say that if you don't have a U.S. passport, you should go out and get one. But having observed firsthand the difference between Americans who travel and those who stay home and watch Fox TV, I think I would reverse that and say, no, never mind. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for high technology when it was revealed that two Swedish tourists heading for the Italian resort of Capri, misspelled the name in their GPS device and thereby found themselves in the industrial town of Carpi, 400 miles away, where they were reportedly very puzzled by the absence of a beach. Said an official from Carpi, it's hard to understand how they managed it. I mean, Capri is an island. (laughs) If more Americans start getting passports, I'm confident we'll see more news items like this. All right, let's go to the mailbag. We want to thank Millicent for her uh, email alerting us to the fact that the planet Venus now has a large white spot on it to, in some ways, match the black spot on the planet Jupiter. The notoriously featureless uh, cloudy surface of Venus rarely has distinguishing marks, and uh, scientists are still not sure what caused this one. But among the possibilities are a large volcanic explosion or perhaps a comet or meteor or asteroid collision, such as the one that uh, struck Jupiter. We'll try and follow up on that. And, and amazingly, in a third story about planets with marks on the surface, we have this item. The, uh, the sharp-eyed camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter has picked up fresh white marks on the Martian surface, which the spectrometer aboard have confirmed to be splattered water ice. These excavations, which are known to be fresh, since they weren't there a few months earlier, are typically 10 to 20 feet across and 1 to 2 feet deep. They were followed over time, and the ice appeared to evaporate. Kind of cool. These are undoubtedly the result of meteorites striking the Martian surface. With only 1% of the atmosphere of uh, our planet, uh, the meteorites tend to come down with a little more zip on them than they do here. I can't resist this letter to Marilyn Vos Savant. Oh, I have to admit I do have a soft spot for. Joshua Messer of Fresno, California, wrote Marilyn to ask, What makes islands float? (laughs) Marilyn diplomatically replied, In fact, islands don't float. If they did, they wouldn't stay in the same place. Adding, islands belong to two main categories. A continental island is actually attached to the mainland but is entirely surrounded by water. Manhattan is an example. By contrast, the Hawaiian islands are oceanic. They arise from and are connected to the ocean floor. And yes, both Oahu and Manhattan Island are fixed in place. This did not stop an enterprising fraudster a century or two ago from raising money in effort to saw Manhattan Island in half and then turn it around to make the real estate more favorable. Apparently a fair amount of money was raised for this project, and no, we don't believe the ancestors of Bernie Madoff were involved. And anyway, speaking of idiots, how many times has this happened to you? You're in an airport, and you're in a hurry. Bags in hand, you're doing your level best to get from point A to point B in the airport expeditiously. As you're running along, you spot... A moving walkway. You enter the walkway thinking this will <laughs> speed your passage, only to find that everybody on board has stopped walking. On July 18, 2009, New Scientist magazine has an article about this phenomenon, which does know it quite frankly that people on what they call travelators, moving walkways, actually tend to slow their pace, which makes time savings on them minimal noting further that if there's no congestion, people on travelators are marginally faster than on normal ground. However, the researchers found that the odds are other travelers will block one's way, making it longer to go from point A to point B on a moving walkway. So our advice to you, if you're in a hurry in an airport, just don't make the mistake of getting on a moving walkway. If idiots are going to stop when they get on them, then why do airports have them? Well, the article says that they believe the main benefit is to reduce walking distance and give weary travelers a chance to rest. Seeing the state of obesity of most American travelers, I would say maybe it's time to get rid of the moving walkway. Another article in New Scientist worthy of citing was a large opinion essay from the July 25th issue, from which I filched that quote from Ronald Reagan a little bit earlier. But this article parallels one in The Economist recently, which uh, which explains that economists these days are kind of looked down upon. In fact, a quote from the essay by Terence Keeley supply-side economics claimed that economic growth depends first on the rich, not poor, being rewarded with tax cuts, and second, on markets being free from regulation. The theory was flawed. The rush by bankers to pay themselves large bonuses even as their failing banks were being nationalized reveals the true function of this bloated remuneration, to benefit only its recipients, while the banks failed precisely because their regulation was too lax. He goes on to note that supply-side economics was buttressed by two further theories, rational expectations and efficient markets. They imply, respectively, that traders do not make systematic errors when predicting the future, and... The prices of financial products, such as shares, bonds, and property, accurately reflect all relevant information. Since experience demonstrates that both these premises are false, probably goes a long way to explaining why the theory didn't pan out quite as well as some would have hoped. Of course, the article isn't about banks. It goes on to note that when it comes to buying into economic theories to suit their own interests, technology entrepreneurs are as bad as the bankers that we're currently demonizing. Another story about economics and how things aren't necessarily as you might think them to be, we would highly recommend the August Smithsonian Magazine article on blue sky thinking. This gets into the topic of uh, cap and trade, an article we don't have time to go into at much length today. We've noted in previous programs that we're skeptical about what cap and trade can accomplish. The article by Richard Conniff is actually pretty high on the method and claims that this is how we were able to rein in acid rain in the eastern United States. Personally, I think we need to bring on an environmentalist to analyze this a little more thoroughly, but what did catch my eye about the article was the fact that uh, this whole cap-and-trade thing came about because a couple of guys, uh, environmentalist John B. Henry and C. Boyden Gray, does that name ring a bell, got together in cooked up this idea that we could cap and trade and improve uh, emissions by allowing market forces to reduce them. C. Boyden Gray was at that time a lawyer working in the Reagan White House. He also later had a role to play in Florida 2000, uh, wherein the national election was stolen by George W. Bush. To put it mildly, C. Boyden Gray is not the kind of guy we necessarily would trust right off the bat to come up with some good ideas in the environmental realm. This is a piece we will return to. And I mentioned The Economist a while ago. I got, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was in the Atlanta airport asking me, hey, you read The Economist, should I grab a copy? What are your choices, I asked. He said, well, they got time in Newsweek. I said, get The Economist. The Economist and British magazines in general appear to, to still operate on the premise that the reader has a brain. Newsweek, for example, has decided to go way past that assumption and just basically tell people what's going on in the world. I'm holding in my hand the August 3rd issue, which has on the cover a large balloon which announces that the recession is over. And if you take the time to buy the magazine and open it and look inside, you'll see a long essay by Daniel Gross explaining on, you know, how we're on the road to recovery. Now, in fairness, Newsweek has become a magazine filled with essays. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them aren't. I do hope I can go the rest of my life and never read anything written by Fareed Zachariah. But uh, their science writer, Sharon Begley, is pretty good. But nevertheless, it ain't a news magazine anymore. Actually, it hasn't really been for a while. It's just given up any effort to pretend that it is. In June, as it was circling the drain, uh, Newsweek brought us a cover story titled Crazy Talk, Oprah, Wacky Cures, and You. This did generate, uh, in subsequent issues, an appropriate response by Michael Melgar, M.D., from Great Neck, New York, who said, I've wasted many hours re-educating my patients after the latest pseudoscience sermon by the likes of Suzanne Somers, Jenny McCarthy, or even Dr. Mehmet Oz. It's bad enough they're giving out crackpot medical advice, but the single-handed contribution that Oprah's making to the science illiteracy of America is real cause for alarm. Summers and McCarthy in particular like to portray this as a battle between big pharma slash medicine and free choice. In fact, the battle is between science, logic, and reason on one side, and superstition and ignorance on the other. And yes, as this show uh, proceeds in the future, we will return to the topic of the kind of idiocy that's being heard on Oprah Winfrey. The Economist, on the other hand, gives you an analysis of what's going on in California that's uh, as good as what you might read in the Sacramento Bee. And I love the fact that on their July 25th issue, they reported on the solar eclipse in China, not only in their science and technology section, but also in one of the economic sections. The reason was, while it was a a scientific event, an astronomic event, due to superstition in Asia, which people uh, attribute all kinds of bad omens to eclipses, they expected the markets to collapse. So they wrote about that as well. Both articles were interesting and informative and neither involved Playboy Centerfolds giving medical advice about vaccinations. All right, we've got to take a break in a minute, but uh, before we go, our pal Matt Perry says he's got a friend of his who writes for Mental Floss magazine. We're going to have to talk to him because uh, they have some pretty good stuff in Mental Floss. Since I think everybody loves stories on dumb criminals, let's close with this one. From the article, Go Directly to Jail, subtitled Four Brilliantly Bungled Crimes by Adam Raymond, we have the following. Long before he was an outlaw country crooner, Merle Haggard was a real outlaw, albeit a bad one. At the rebellious age of 20, Haggard and a few friends planned to rob a restaurant. They got drunk and waited till 3 a.m. in the morning when they knew it would be empty. But when they broke in, they were surprised to find the restaurant full of people. Turns out in their drunken haze, they actually wandered in at 10.30 p.m. This attempt at burglary landed Haggard in notorious San Quentin State Prison where he saw Johnny Cash perform three times which inspired him to pick guitars instead of locks. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break and come back and have some more fun.
1: First thing I remember knowing Was a lonesome whistle blowing And a youngin's dream of Growing up to ride a freight train leaving town not knowing where I'm bound, no one to change my mind, mama tried one and only rebel child from a family meek and mild my mama seemed to know what lay in store despite all my Sunday learning with the bad I kept on turning till mama couldn't hold me anymore I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But Mama tried, Mama tried Mama tried to raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause Mama tried